when the army of Julian the Apostate was on the march to Persia, some of the soldiers got a hold of a Christian believer to torment and to torture him in brutal sport. After they got tired of it, they looked into his eyes and said to their helpless victim with scorn in their voices, where now is your carpenter God? Prisoner looked up through pain, blood, and agony and said, where now is my carpenter God? He is building a coffin for your emperor. The scorn that God is missing was at the heart of the charge from the false teachers in Second Peter, who opined something similar to that. Where now is your carpenter God? This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter refers to a letter that he's written previously. Most people think it wasn't 1 Peter. It was actually another letter that we don't have record of, but Peter refers to it. Whatever letter is addressed... The point is, he wrote to them to remind the believers about the presence of false teachers and about the veracity of Christ coming back. And he writes with genuine affection, notice his wording. Four times in the chapter, he uses the term beloved, which can be translated dear friends. So the warnings that he provides the flock, the Repetition of his reminders come from a pastoral heart towards the believers. And it reminds us that our believer, our job as believers is not primarily, you know, as a, as a plumber, as a, as a lawyer, as a computer tech, or even parents. These are roles. But as Christians, our primary job is to love. Take it from the words of our Savior. And he said to them, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The fact is, if you make a, a good wage, save well, keep in great shape, but you don't love well, how does your life count? I might add, if a pastor doesn't love well, he doesn't pastor well, regardless of the budget, staff, attendance, how well he preaches. In the worst of human situations. What is it we desire most? The Texas Department of Criminal Justice maintains a digital archive of every inmate's last statement before execution. They've gone back 
from 1976 to now, the most common word used by the vast majority of all that were recorded, the most common word was love. Love given, love received. Beloved is to be our posture as the people of God. Love holds to truth and affection for the individual. Biblical love is not the modern idea of approval of every thought and every behavior. To stir up means to arouse or awaken fully. He's not accusing them of being lazy or, or sleepy, but rather not to let up. Peter wants their minds to operate with a sincerity. The idea is that their minds are to be uncontaminated by a seductive influence of their passions, their lusts, their senses. I mean, it's easy in this world and with our flesh to give in a little here, give in a little there, until our moral senses are compromised. It can be in what we believe or even in our behavior. We can find ourselves at odds with kingdom values. Should that concern us? There's a Latin derivation of the word sincere in our passage that means without wax. You say, what in the world does that mean, without wax? I see some pottery salesmen would use wax to cover cracks and weak places in a compromised pot to cover it up, sell it off as new, even though it was damaged. And the only way that this could be detected is to hold the jug up to the sun and see if those weaknesses were visible. Such a vase was sun-judged. That's the literal meaning of the Greek word used here. God wants his people to be sun-judged, have sun-judged minds, not those that have degraded spots that have been covered over. See, when our minds are judged by truth, they possess this kind of sincerity, false teaching, moral compromise are much more easily detected. Think about this. How, how could we practice that here at Christ Community Church? Well, you know, it, it's, it's when people are confessing sin in their life group. They're, they're admitting what they're going through. We live vulnerably with others. That's the medicine that keeps us from covering up. That's the sincerity to make us a, a holy community. It's a beautiful thing, and it's, I think, one of our biggest attractions as a church. And what I love about this place. Peter writes, by way of reminder, being reminded doesn't mean we're too ignorant to remember, but I think it's more of a need to keep it a priority, right? I mean, there is a need, no matter how long we have known Christ, to remember what is called in verse 3, first thing. 
Because I think we all fall into this idea that we only listen to what's novel or new. Repetition is askewed. However, repetition of eternal truths can be life-giving. I mean, there are certain foods that you may see as boring, you get tired of, but they're necessary for daily sustenance. I mean, Jesus spoke of what kind of bread? Daily bread. Repetition, not only in the physical world, but in the spiritual world. There are great Christian truths that must never be pushed into the background for the desire of novelty. The immediate takes priority in our culture instead of the important. So we have to be reminded. Peter will cite what he means by the most important things, the first things. Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What are the predictions of holy prophets? The predictions of the prophets are all of the prophecies God has given to confirm the veracity of Christ. Notice predictions is plural, so we're not just talking about one prophecy, one area, but hundreds of prophecies. We know this when it comes to our faith. We know this when people make religious claims, that a claim is much different than the truth, right? And thankfully, God has accompanied his word with corresponding miracles and the testimony of Christ. It's written in unity, without contradiction. It provides bibliographical, historical, archaeological evidence we have to support it. And then you have verified, fulfilled prophecies, like the destruction of Old Testament cities that were given, or the triumphal entry of Christ, which is an amazing prophecy given hundreds of years before, or his crucifixion, his, his resurrection. A total of 300 prophecies fulfilled in Christ alone. I mean, the Bible is unlike any other book. And the Lord is still speaking through his word. And so Peter is saying, if there are promises about Jesus coming back, you can trust those because it's from the scripture. Of course, when Peter wrote this, what was he referring to? He was referring to the Old Testament because that was all they had the Old Testament Scripture. It's as much a part of the Word of God as the New Testament. Just because many don't understand it, cast it aside, does not change its nature. The Old Testament sacrifices and, and ceremonies, even though no longer in operation, still hold meaning as a picture of what God provides for us today. And yes, we're no longer bound by the Old Covenant, but it doesn't mean it's without value. The Old Testament ceremonies serve as a picture of what was to come in Christ. It's like a historical thank you note to remind us of the glory of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God in Jesus. The hard-to-understand passages of God clearing out people who possessed 
a portion of the promised land intended for Israel, reminds us of the surety of God's promise and his character. He's still a holy, awesome, pure, promise-keeping God. He deserves our utmost respect, honor, worship. Of course, many believers today have a difficult time knowing how to place the Old Testament into their stream of thought. Instead of learning to appreciate all it has, they'll dismiss it. I, I hear pastors doing this as well, or denigrating the Old Testament. They opt for a, a Jesus-only mantra, not realizing that there's little or no context for Jesus without the Old Testament. How can we appreciate what Jesus has done without the history of the Old Testament? Dismissing the Old Testament fails to recognize over 300 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the New, 500 inferences of the Old in the New. Jesus was the greatest Old Testament scholar of them all, quoting from the Old Testament over 50 times. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was divinely inspired. He said, the scripture cannot be broken. Remember, all he had was the Old Testament in John 10, 35. He called the Old Testament scriptures the commandment of God. And in Matthew 15, 3, he said, that was in Matthew 15, 3. And in Mark 7, 13, he said, it was the word of God. Those who embrace Jesus and then denigrate the Old Testament, are hypocritical for propping up Jesus but denying his words and convictions about the Old Testament. I mean, if the Old Testament is not God's word, then who's to say any part of it is worth listening to or worthy of our trust? To deny the authority of the Old Testament in order to solve all the sticky issues they have it's like burning down your, old, your whole house to get rid of a spider. Now, to me, that makes sense because I hate spiders. But normally, you wouldn't want to do that. If the Old Testament is not God's word, then you have a gutted Jesus. And Peter is saying, look at all the prophecies fulfilled. And remember, God keeps his promises. Peter doesn't hesitate to talk about the Old Testament, but highlights it as a key piece of evidence to show God's faithfulness. So we're not to allow false teachers to denigrate it within our own head and heart. We're not to allow false teachers to persuade us that the second coming is not going to ever occur. We're not to allow false teachers to have us believe that God is not trustworthy. It's reminiscent of Peter's words in the first chapter. And we have the prophetic word made uh, more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is giving confidence to the church that the Spirit was involved in the Old and New Testament is more trustworthy than experience, is more trustworthy than somebody's own interpretation. Because God has put it in place. He has, he has breathed upon people like a sail moved along by the wind to produce the Scriptures. The final product has his approval. Yes, there are those who scorn this idea, who scorn the promises of God. And Peter has something to say about them. That's in verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with, uh, with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Whether those desires are a license for their own behavior or giving permission for others, we see again and again in this book that specific desires or passion are connected to the scoffing. In 2 Peter 1.4, uh, it says the world is characterized by what? Sinful desire. And speaking about the false teachers, Peter says in chapter 2, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. You have behavior, a heart posture, in addition to the false teaching. And later he's describing, in general, the unrighteous. And says, who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Peter says, know this first of all. What's he saying? You need to keep remembering to not be surprised at the opposition. Quit acting like you didn't expect this. Do not be surprised. God knows this. It's happened before, and it's happening now. And if he knows, he will provide help, comfort. He will equip us in the midst of such a world. We've enjoyed maybe 200 short years of having a, a, a modicum of approval from the general culture as Christians. That was a blip on the screen. It no longer exists. The opposition is toward the Word of God, toward God's authority in moral matters, toward the veracity of the second coming. If you look at the second coming throughout Scripture, it's almost always connected with the idea of a final reckoning or judgment. Now listen, the general populace likes the idea of judgment for others until it applies to us personally. 
Humans want to be able to do what they want to do with freedom of conscience and no consequence. That great philosopher and comedian Louis C.K. said, I have a lot, of, a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like the part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing I want, I sure as heck just do what I want to do, end quote. That is a paraphrase of 2 Peter chapter 3. Scoffing means to make fun of someone. It describes the attitude of the false teachers, specifically toward the second coming, but also God being an authority. False teachers argued that the second coming wasn't going to occur because it hasn't happened yet. And at the root of the desire is to follow sinful passions. I mean, the thinking of the first century mirrors our modern times, does it not? Can you not recognize intellectual arrogance? Social snobbery? Contempt for the physical body? Passionate sensuality and greed? First century? Now. Remember, this was probably an early form of Gnosticism. It wasn't fully developed, but an early form. The Gnostics denied the importance of the physical body. Therefore, have sex with anyone as often as you want because it doesn't matter. The body is meaningless. And the same idea is perforated today with the rejection of a created body. Therefore, the body has no design, no purpose. Nancy Piercy wrote, the body has become a morally neutral piece of matter that can be manipulated for whatever purposes the self may impose on it, like pressing a mold into clay or stamping Lincoln's profile on a copper penny. End quote. I was interested in seeing the sponsors for the Ozark Pride Fest in downtown Springfield this month, featuring its own drag show and celebration. You can find the sponsors on the Pride Fest website and brochure. First of all, let me say this. I've got no bone to pick with people who want a drag show. You want to go to your club have your drag show. I'm a libertarian when it comes to that. I don't expect the society to take my values. Go do your thing. Just don't shove it in the face of our town, in the middle of downtown Springfield, in daylight, where you've got families, kids roaming around. For what? For a minuscule percentage of the population. I find that to be quite a stance for the city to take. I know some of them. I appreciate them. They've got a tough job. I get all of that. But to have sponsors such as several churches, that doesn't surprise me. The city of Springfield, the public library, 
and the Springfield Health Department along with large local companies. That gets my attention. Now, of course, the city has denied being technically a sponsor, but they have a booth and they have issued a license to meet. I noticed one organization who is in the business of helping abused women. That brings up an interesting conundrum, does it not? I mean, what is a woman to them? Why should I care about a woman's body being abused? What case do you make that women are worth protecting and that their body has value? Is it because the woman's body is important? If it is, does it have purpose? And whatever answers you give to all of that, does that also apply to sexuality? I mean, we tell women to love their body they're in, to love their curves, love their age, love the skin that you're in. But then we see a society that completely falls off a cliff when it comes to sex with the body. These observations are not the result of me being a homophobe, transphobe, dragophobe. All people are made in the image of God, and they are deserving of love and respect. Everyone. But that doesn't mean the approval of every ideology that renders these kinds of acts as meaningless. Peter says, Peter, the New Testament, the Word of God, the reason people do this kind of stuff is because they're motivated by sexual lust and they don't want to have anything to do with a God who holds us accountable for our actions. No authority. The human condition doesn't want to point to boundaries in others because we don't want boundaries ourselves. That's what it means to be human in a secular sense. Political philosopher Michael Sandel of Harvard said it this way, the prevailing concept of the individual today is the unencumbered self, by which he means unencumbered by moral or civic ties they have not chosen. Law professor Marianne Glendon of Harvard says American law is now shaped by social contract theory's depiction of the natural human person as a solitary creature. It is based on an image of the rights bearer as a self-determining, unencumbered individual, a being connected to others only by choice, end quote. In other words, self is God and answers to no one. So you can see why in the first century and now, the idea of Christ coming back and holding people accountable would be so repugnant. So my friends, here's the message in plain language. This is how the world works.
we are not to be surprised. We've maybe enjoyed a short respite here in America. I'm disappointed that it's changing. And by the way, the city is not our enemy. But it's playing the part, the scripture says, the world plays. Let us not be shocked. And let us not be discouraged. Yes, they are illogical. Yes, it is damaging to our culture. You know, if I were to ask, a, have a celebration of church history downtown and like to see how many would sponsor that. Of course, I wouldn't ask for such a thing. That's a boring celebration, but I'm just saying. <laughs> but a drag show? A purient desire? That's worthy of a parade. As one commentator said, anthro Pocentric, that's man-centered hedonism, always mocks at the idea of ultimate standards. For men who live in the world of the relative, the claim that the relative will be ended by the absolute is nothing short of ludicrous. For men who nourish a belief in human self-determination and perfectibility, the very idea that we are accountable and dependent is a bitter pill to swallow. No wonder they mocked. End quote. Listen, my goal in saying this is not to rile you up and to start storming City Hall. Trust me, that's not it. I'm just here to say, why are we surprised? We shouldn't be. Hebrews says we live in a foreign country. This is not our home. I don't like it. I may even talk to some people about it. I'll do whatever the Lord leads me to do. I'm not asking you to do anything other than what this passage is saying. Don't be surprised. Know that God is still in control. Listen to the commentary of nearly 3,000 years ago by the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement when the overwhelming whip passes through it will, come, will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid a as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you'll be beaten down by it, as often as it passes through it, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass through by night, and, and by day and by night, and it will be sheer tear to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, and in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong, 
For I have heard a decree of just destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. I don't think he feels any different now. God keeps his promises, and he will do what he said he will do. And he'll do it in this age. Listen, the greatest choice we have is not gay versus straight. The greatest choice we have is not male or female. I'm not saying those aren't important. But the greater choice is Jesus versus the world. That's the greatest choice. What is it that people are attracted to? Larry Hurtado, church historian, wrote Destroyer of the Gods. He claims it wasn't relevance and relativity that made the gospel attractive in the first century. And I would say it's not that either today. Not our big shows, not the smoke, ripping guitar, great stage show. That is not the attraction to the gospel. What Hurtado says, it's its distinctiveness and difference of that prevailing culture. And for the first century church, he listed five things. Listen to this. It may surprise you. Number one, it's multiracial and multi-ethic composition within the church. Something completely foreign to Rome. And now you have all these people coming together in the body of Christ. Great diversity. Number two, it crossed socioeconomic lines. They had very high value of the poor. Rich and poor coming together, communing together. <laughs> Number two, a resolve in its stance against infanticide and abortion, which was rampant in Rome, even those that considered themselves moral did such a thing, approved of such a thing. The Christians, no, they stood against it. Number four, crystal clear in its approval and um, encouragement of sex between one man, one woman, in marriage till death do us part, and not outside of that. And number five, nonviolence when it comes to resolving conflict. They did not take up the sword. Interesting. Tim Keller, I think, did well to say these first two about racial and multi-ethnic and crossing social economic lines, that appears more liberal to people. The next two against abortion, against sex outside of marriage, that appears more conservative to people. But see, it's what the Bible calls us to do. That's our allegiance. It's not to liberal or conservative how it ever falls in the culture, let it be. Because 
the fact is, we're not going to please everybody. We'll always have people ticked at us if we listen well, if he's our final authority. The gospel changes lives. That's our message. That would be my message to our city leaders. That should be the message to our culture. I don't want them to see us as angry, militant Christians who are so ticked off because you did this. Uh, They can see us as people who don't agree, but who offer something that provides flourishing, human flourishing. Not the destruction of values. It holds up the the value of, of the spiritual and the physical and the emotional, that there's a, a unity in that. That's a Christian ideal. Not that we have the need to say the body has no value. See, I am a pastor because I think God knows what he's doing. And I think his truth is indeed truth. And it's the best way. And so we offer a better way through the gospel, through loving other people. Listen, if, if, they, if they make fun of us, let it be because we love too much. Let it be because we, we told the truth too much. But let it not be because we're some angry group over here who's always protesting whatever. You know, those Christians who had the first hospitals who were feeding the poor. That's the posture. The gospel makes a difference and transforms lives. They will know us by our posters, by our bumper stickers. They will know us by what? Our love, right? Doesn't mean we compromise. Doesn't mean we have to agree with everybody. Listen, I'm extremely disappointed with what I've seen, with what I talked about here, what's going to go on downtown. It's disappointing. Do I get angry? Yes. But then I read this and I realize what God is saying. Like, yeah, okay. You know, it's kind of like in some way, <laughs> you, ever, you ever have, you know, the, the Christmas or Thanksgiving with family members that you're not looking forward to. You know there's going to be conversations maybe about politics or religion or, you know, and, and you know, there's just going to be a bent you're just not interested in hearing for the hundredth time. And, and you know that if you get angry and you get all upset, it's just going to ruin it for all the other people that are in earshot. Or I suppose you could not go, but, you know, that doesn't seem to be a good answer either. And so we, we have to find a way to traffic through this and still love the people that we really disagree with and find some common ground and still let them know that I want what's best for you, I love you, I care about you, however you can do that in, in practical ways. So 
I hope that you get the intent of all this and I think what, what Peter is trying to say. Let's pray.